Father, as we come to your word today, we thank you for it, and we thank you for the work that it does in us. We remember, Lord, that faith comes by hearing, and so, Lord, as we turn to your word today, we ask that you would grow our faith, increase our faith, that we may grow in the likeness of Christ and shine as lights in the darkness of this world. For the glory of Christ. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 31. Genesis chapter 31. Christina asked me, are you really going to preach on 55 verses today? Yes, I am. I hope you packed a lunch. (laughs) Nobody wanted to watch the Seahawks game anyway, right? You know, if you pay attention to news stations these days, and there's part of me that hopes that you don't, because, man, fake news is out there. Real journalism is practically dead this, these days. But, but if you do watch the news stations, you might be aware of the fact that there are what are called floating continents that are composed of garbage drifting out in the oceans. And, you know, they say that one giant patch of floating trash is estimated to weigh over three tons, which is about, and it's about the, the, twice the size of Texas. And not surprisingly, they say that most of it is composed of plastic, which we're told is very harmful to marine life. Well, for years, the kind of the working assumption that scientists have had has been that marine life, which ingests particles or pieces of plastic out of the ocean, does so quite unintentionally, that it's completely accidental. But one recent study suggests the opposite, that the real reason that some marine life ingests plastic is because they like it. According to Austin Allen, a Duke University doctoral student who is leading this study, he says, quote, plastics may be inherently tasty, end quote, to coral and and plankton, which are known to eat and ingest little bits and pieces of plastic. And uh, one article reports of his study, it says, quote, the two-part laboratory study consisted of hand-feeding coral as well as growing it in seawater tanks contaminated with plastic particles less than a millimeter in diameter. During the feeding trials, the scientists picked up a plastic or sand particle with forceps and dropped it near a coral polyp. If the sand came near their mouths, the animals used tiny hairs covering their body to brush themselves clean. But if a piece of plastic tumbled by, the corals snapped into action. They fired cellular harpoon guns, which launched toxic barbs into the plastic particle. The corals scooped the plastic toward their mouths with their tentacles, then gobbled up the trash." End quote. And you might be wondering, why in the world would they do that? It's, it's bad for them. It's, it's going to kill them. And the study explains that neither coral nor plankton actually have eyes with which to to, to hunt for food or to look for food. Instead, they make the decision whether or not to eat something based on what it feels like and what it tastes like when it hits their tongue. As one of the researchers says, he says, quote, when an animal tastes something, that's when they make a decision whether or not to eat it, end quote. And so while they are eating this plastic, it's very intentional and not surprisingly, the plastic nevertheless hurts the marine life, and sometimes it kills them because they weren't created or designed to digest it. And that's an awful lot like us when it comes to sin, isn't it? Think about Eve when she saw the apple and she tasted that it was good. It sounds, she sounds like a piece of coral, you know, getting a piece of plastic. 
And the thing is, you know, we, we make up all kinds of excuses when it comes to sin. We might say, you know, it, it, it feels good. Uh, we might say, it, it seems right to do this. We might say, God made me this way. But our decisions and our convictions have to be based on more than just sensory input. It has to be based on something above and beyond ourselves. They must be shaped and influenced by an authority, an authority aside from and outside of ourselves, higher than we are, greater than we are, purer than we are. Because just like it is for plankton eating plastic, there are consequences for indulging in sin. And the Christian, therefore, should look entirely different from the world, and we must fight to break free of both sin and worldly influence. So today we're going to be continuing our study of the book of Genesis, looking at chapter 31. And as we do, we're going to find Jacob in a really difficult situation. You'll remember that he spent 14 years really working for Rachel's hand. It was supposed to be seven, but he got swindled by Laban and convinced to to work another seven in addition to the initial seven. So he's been working for years for Laban to earn Rachel as his bride, and Laban has been a cruel master because Laban is covetous. Let's remember, that's, that's the thing that characterizes Laban. He's, he's very covetous, and so he's treated Jacob harshly. He's treated him abusively, and he's treated him unjustly. And Laban is a picture of the way the world works. Laban's a picture of the world. He loves and he values, and he pursues the exact same things that Scripture tells us the world loves and values and pursues. Let's remember that Jacob had been forced to run away. He'd been forced to run for his life when he swindled his birthright away from Esau, and he came to Laban with nothing. And Laban also had close to nothing. But while Jacob has been working for Laban, Laban has flourished greatly. He has prospered greatly because Jacob is being blessed by God. God promised to bless Jacob. He promised to protect and provide for Jacob. And the blessing has resulted in his employer, covetous Laban, also prospering greatly. And yet Laban didn't share it. He didn't give Jacob what was due to him what he had earned, what he had worked for. He kept it all for himself. And so after many years, Jacob wants to return home, but he has nothing to show for all of his labor except for two wives and a lot of children. And so when Jacob declared in the the previous passage, in the the last chapter, his intention to leave, Laban attempted to deprive him and attempted to, to swindle him once again. And yet God nevertheless, we saw at the end of chapter 30, God nevertheless caused Jacob to prosper with his flocks. And so as we continue, we should keep in mind that it's been 20 years now since Jacob ran away from Canaan, ran away from his family. But now he's declared his intention to return, and now he's preparing to return. So we're going to be covering chapter 31, and the central point of this passage is that God uses the world to refine his people. But he also calls us to separate ourselves from the world. And as his people, we must do what he says. So we start out by looking at verses 1 to 16. We read this. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's and from 
what was our father's, he has gained all his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So there's a lot that takes place in just this portion of the text, but it's really what sets the stage for the rest of the entire chapter. But the whole chapter really could be summed up by what Rachel and Leah say to Jacob in verse 16, right, right there at the end, right there what they said to him. They said, now then, whatever God has said to you, do. That's really what this, this whole chapter is all about. And that's also what the Christian journey is about too, isn't it? learning to submit ourselves to the will of God. And you see, the problem for most Christians isn't that you know, we don't know where to find the will of God. We know that His will is revealed in His Word. And it's not even so much that we're not sure how to apply God's will as revealed in His Word. Most Christians know that it's there. The issue is that even as new creations in Christ Jesus... Our flesh can be so strong. Even as new creations in Christ Jesus, our flesh resists any inclination toward yielding to God and doing what His Word says. Nevertheless, let us be known for this. For doing what God has instructed us in His Word to do. Now, Jacob, Jacob hasn't been the most righteous person his whole life. He hasn't been the most upright person. We've seen that he was raised to be a swindler. He was raised looking out for his best interests. But now we see that the trials and the difficulties and the hardships and the valleys that he has endured over the course of the last 20 years as he's worked for Laban, they're starting to change him. He's, he's changed since he was called by God. He's changed since 
he heard God's promises and believed God's promises when he believed that God would be with him and that God would bless him and prosper him and protect him. All of this has worked to soften Jacob's heart, but also to humble him. His humility is seen in his eagerness to obey God. Rather than going with any inclination that his flesh might have, we see his humility in the fact that he is eager to obey what God has told him to do as we begin this chapter. The chapter starts off with the sons of Laban realizing that Jacob has been prospering for the last six years and the Lord has increased his flocks. The flocks that Laban remember in the previous chapter, had tried to prevent Jacob from having. And conversely, Laban's flocks have not prospered. They have diminished, while Jacob's have. And so Jacob perceives a change in Laban, in Laban's demeanor, in Laban's attitude, in Laban's treatment of him. Even though he treated Jacob horribly all along, it's gotten worse. He, he, he knew all along that his prosperity, any prosperity that he was gaining was from Jacob, was because Jacob was being blessed by God. But as his flocks have now diminished and Jacob's are increasing, and Jacob is just off tending his own flocks now apparently, Laban has nothing anymore resembling favor toward Jacob. He didn't love Jacob. He didn't care how Jacob felt about things. Laban represents the world. The rebellious system that opposes and defies and hates God. Laban represents the world. He only cares about himself. He's constantly, constantly looking out for number one. Constantly looking out for his own best interests, often at the expense of others. And so the truth is, not only does he not care about Jacob, he hates Jacob. He hates Jacob. And so in, in verse 3, we see that God instructs Jacob to leave. And what's his response? Immediate obedience. Immediately. The, the next verse, he starts working out a plan to get his wives ready for, for moving with him. When God speaks to Jacob, when God reveals his will to Jacob, Jacob responds obediently, immediately. And that's what our obedience should look like too. Now keep in mind that Jacob didn't have Holy Scripture to lead him or, or, or to guide him or to reveal God's will to him to direct his path. And so for him to receive you know, revelation directly from God is the only way that he could have known what God's will is. But that is not the case for us. For us, we have the Holy Scriptures. But there are two difficulties that we face. For, for us, yeah, we, we have the, the Holy Scriptures, but the first problem that we have is un, not only understanding, but applying, figuring out how to apply Scripture to our lives. And the truth is that if you didn't have the Holy Spirit residing within you, illuminating the text of Scripture for you, you would never understand how to rightly apply it. You, you couldn't understand it, so you couldn't apply it to your life. As George Mueller once noted, quote, the Spirit and the Word must be combined. If I look to the Spirit alone without the Word, I lay myself open to great delusions, 
end quote. See, this is a major issue in our day and age, actually. If you turn on the TV, if you get on the internet, you see all these, these televangelists and well-known teachers claiming to receive direct special revelation from God apart from the Word of God. And we, we hear it so much. We hear, you know, God told me to do this, or God told me to do that, or God showed me this, or God showed me that. And we hear it so much that we stop even being shocked when we hear it. It becomes so normal that we no longer have red flags shoot up whenever somebody says it. Friends, God does not reveal His will to anybody apart from His Word. The canons are closed. The Old Testament is complete. The New Testament is complete. There's no more revelation. It's sufficient. The Bible is sufficient. The way that God speaks now is by illuminating the Holy Spirit, illuminating the text for us, so that when we see it, we not only understand it, but we become convicted by it, and we want to act on it. It shows us specifically how to apply it to our lives. The Holy Spirit's illumination shows us how to apply it to our lives. So the first problem we have is understanding how it applies to our lives, but then there's a second problem, a deeper problem, and that is the human will. Maybe we understand what it means, but we think to ourselves, that's costly. Or we think to ourselves, wow, that would be, that would be really difficult. I don't know if I want to do that. The London Baptist Confession of 1689 says this. It says, The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other than the Holy Scripture delivered by the Spirit into which Scripture so delivered, our faith is finally resolved. End quote. Scripture is where we find God's will. Scripture is where everything gets settled. Only Scripture has the authority to direct our lives. Here's the problem with somebody saying, God told me this or God told me that. How does anybody else know? And you see teachers, you know, false teachers playing this card, playing this line in order to exalt, uh, ex exalt themselves as having authority over whatever they're saying, even though it's not in Scripture. Only Scripture has the authority to direct our lives as illuminated by the Holy Spirit. But Jacob didn't have a Bible. So God spoke to him directly, and Jacob obeyed immediately. And so he summons his wives out to a field, out to the field where his flocks are, where they won't be seen, they won't be overheard by anybody from Laban's family. The ancient Mesopotamian legal code actually prevented uh, Jacob from just packing up his wives and taking them with him out of the country. He was required to seek their consent. And so, as he has their attention, he starts recalling the years of abuse, the years of hardship that he has endured under Laban's hand. He recalls what a cheat Laban's been, what a, what a swindler Laban's been all these years. And nevertheless, he knows this. Look at verse 7. In, in light of his hardships in light of the valleys that he's gone through, in light of his great loss that he has endured, he says, but God did not permit him to harm me. 
And so he recalls this conversation that he had with the angel of the Lord, who is Jesus, by the way. And how the angel of the Lord was aware of the injustice and instructed him to return home to Canaan. And how do do Rachel and Leah respond? It's kind of funny, if you remember a little ways back when they were having children, how at odds they were with one another. If you remember the way they they went back and forth trying to outdo one another, you might uh, expect that they would disagree on absolutely everything, even to spite one another. One would disagree that the sky was blue to, to spite the other one. But they agree with everything that Jacob says about their father. They knew what a swindler he was. They knew what a crook he was. And they knew from firsthand experience because they got swindled too. The inheritance that should have been theirs, Laban kept for himself and spent on himself. And as they point out, he's a guy who treats his own daughters like foreigners. So they recognize that the wealth that Laban has lost in recent years and the wealth that Jacob has gained has all been from Jacob's God's hand. It's from Yahweh's hand. And so they consent. Whatever God has said to you, do. It's an important thing. Whatever God has said to you, do. So it's not that God doesn't speak today. We, we don't believe that. Instead, we believe that God does speak through the illumination by the Holy Spirit when we read, when we study, when, when we hear God's Word. But the question is, what about your will? Will you do what God says? Or will you defy Him? Will you yield your desires? Will you yield your ambitions, your, your affections? in humble obedience to the Lord? Or will you live your life as if to say, His Word couldn't possibly mean that? Or that couldn't possibly apply to my life in that way? So this is why repentance, regular repentance, daily, sometimes hourly, sometimes every minute, repentance is such an important thing. And why it must be done regularly. Because you have a flesh nature Even if you are in Christ, you have a flesh nature that will pull you in the opposite direction from the direction that the Spirit's leading you. If you are in Christ, it's like having two flames burning within you and you can only feed one. So the question is, which will you feed? Which will you choose? The flesh or the Spirit? Will you do what God instructs you in His Word? to do. Jacob did. And if you think that that might have created problems for him, (laughs) you're right. It created a ton of problems for him. Let's continue. Let's look at verses 17 to 21. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock and his possession that he had acquired in Padan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he had intended to flee. 
He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. So Jacob is is wise here. He, He does exercise some wisdom here. He waits to make his move until Laban is away shearing his sheep. And it might seem like that would be just a, a very simple process that wouldn't take a whole lot of time. But it, is, it seems that he still has, while his flock has diminished, he still has a pretty big flock based, uh, based on what we've learned about the way that he has prospered in recent years. But sharing a flock of sheep is something, you know, it, it's something that sounds simple. Uh, and, and while electricity has made it a lot easier than it would be without electricity, uh, it, it still takes a lot of time. So without electricity, it really takes quite a bit of time. One ancient document describes somewhere between three and four hundred men taking three days to do the shearing of a large flock of sheep. Three or four hundred men. Uh, that's a, for, to take three days, that must have been a pretty big flock, but it tells you it was a lengthy process. It took time. And so Laban's prolonged absence is what creates the opportunity for Jacob to hit the road. So Jacob and his wives, they, they mount their camels, they drive their sheep into the distance as they set off for Canaan. They set off for the promised land, right? But before they do, we're told that Rachel takes her father's household gods. And that as they're leaving, uh, Jacob just has no idea that this has happened. She has, he has no idea that she has stolen these household gods. So it seems clear that these, these idols, these gods, were probably you know, pretty small. They were probably figures that had been carved out of wood or carved uh, or molded from clay. The question that this forces us to ask is, why did she take them? And there are a lot of answers to this one. A lot of people come up with a lot of different answers to this one. Some will say, you know, that, that she loved her father, so she wanted to cleanse or, or purify her father's house. And so this is an indication that she just recognized the wickedness of the, the false gods, and she loved her father enough to take them away from him. I find that extremely unlikely. Uh, others will say that Laban used them for divination, and he would have used them to figure out where to find where they were going. Um, I suppose that would be possible, but uh, very, very unlikely again. A third idea is that she took them to just spite her father, so, so she did it out of, out of bitterness toward him or maybe contempt toward him. That's getting warmer, I think, getting more likely. But I would propose that the reason she did it is because while she had seen the work of God, Jacob's God, and she believed in Jacob's God, she nevertheless felt like she needed to have some kind of backup plan. A plan B, just in case plan A didn't work out. Just in case they weren't delivered completely by Jacob's God. She better have a backup plan, is what she's thinking. And we might say, what a ridiculous superstition, right? And it is. But is it really just her? I mean, how often are we tempted, as she was, to take some worldly ingredient and mix it into, syncretize it into our faith? How often are we tempted to cling to the world's security blankets, whether it's a political party or anything, instead of trusting in God completely? I mean, that's what she's doing, but but we're tempted to do the same thing. You take a little bit of idolatry, 
a little bit of false worship from the culture. And you mix it in with the type of worship that God has instructed, true worship. And hey, maybe people like it better. Maybe it makes people feel good about themselves. Maybe it draws a bigger crowd. And, and besides, who really notices? God notices. And so Rachel seems to be syncretizing her faith in the one true God, the God of Jacob, with the superstitious, demonic idolatry of her culture. And to support this notion, archaeologists have actually found ancient documents from uh, you know, the Mesopotamian uh, culture, which indicate that the person who was in possession of the father's household goods had the right to the estate. So there seems to have been a part of Rachel that was thinking that you know, she was going to get hers one way or the other. If it didn't come from Jacob being rescued, well, maybe her father's household gods would earn her the right to have her father's estate. But the idea here is that obedience to God requires leaving all worldliness behind rather than sneaking just a little bit of worldliness in, rather than blending, syncretizing a little bit of worldliness from the culture into our faith. And as you might predict, this would cause problems for Jacob and his caravan. Let's continue looking at verses 22 to 35. It says, When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days, and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me, and did not tell me, so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons or, or grandsons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away, because you have longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours, and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. You know, one of the disadvantages that Jacob has here from like a, a military standpoint, if you were thinking of, of the way a military would work, is that Jacob has to move all of his flocks of sheep over all of this distance. And so when Laban receives word of what's happened after three days, he and his family take up 
pursuit. Now, if it was just somebody on a horse chasing somebody else on a horse, he would never catch him. But Jacob's got all these sheep. So Laban isn't being slowed down by hundreds or perhaps thousands of sheep. And so they catch up to Jacob in his camp in seven days. Now, if you'll remember, when Jacob had his dream in which he saw the ladder descending from heaven, God had promised him that night that he would protect him. And so in light of that promise, we see that on the sixth night, God comes to Laban in a dream and warns him about saying anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And if you're wondering what that means, well, it's kind of an expression that means you're not going to get him back. So don't try to entice him back by saying something nice, and don't threaten to harm him by saying something threatening and get him back that way. And if you look through this passage and you think about the verbs that we see here, it's like reading about a war. Fled, pursued, followed, close after, overtook. I mean, these are all military terms that we'd expect to find in a book describing a war. And make no mistake about it, if God had not intervened, if God had not specifically warned Laban on the sixth night, it would have been a war. And being outnumbered and being outarmed, there's little question that Jacob would have lost. As Laban overtakes Jacob's camp, we see Laban playing a really ridiculous card. He turns himself into the victim here. Don't you hate that? Don't you hate that? Don't you hate it when somebody who's clearly done something wrong, somebody who has a pattern of sinning against others, turns the tables and acts like they're the victim. You know, I, I Personally, I don't know if there's anything more just irritating than that. But so Laban plays like he's this, this loving man who's just been so deeply wounded. You know, he's a father who, who's deeply wounded that he's lost his daughters and his grandsons, and he didn't even get a chance to say goodbye to them. You know, he, if, he, if they would have just said goodbye, he would have sent them away with this going away party, and it would have been all chipper and, yeah, right. Isn't that what we're thinking to ourselves? We know Laban better than that. That's not what he would have done. That's the card he plays. That's the card he plays. But eventually he gets to what really, really irked him and the real reason for his pursuit. Look at verse 30. Verse 30. He goes, he goes through this whole pity party. Woe is me. I'm the victim, right? But then he ends with, why did you steal my gods? Isn't it crazy to see that that's all that he was really concerned about. What's even crazier is that just the night before, he came face to face with Jacob's God. And he knew better than to defy Jacob's God. But he still wants his gods. He still wants them back. And Jacob's response is, I didn't take your gods. In fact, he's so confident that neither he nor anybody in his camp took these gods. He says, whoever did it, We'll put him to the sword. Capital punishment. If anybody here took his gods, he's so sure that nobody did. And so Laban goes tearing through Jacob's camp, looking for idols. He finds nothing in Jacob's tent. He finds nothing in Leah's tent. He, he doesn't find anything anywhere. And as he comes to Rachel, we see that Laban has taught her well. And she, he's kind of met his match. 
She's learned well from all the years of watching Laban deceive people. And so she says, I can't arise from, uh, from the back of this camel because the way of the women is upon me. It's, it's her period. And it was a smart move because at that time, men believed that there were contagious impurities upon a woman during this time of the month. So he's like, I'm staying away. I'm not going to touch you. So Laban doesn't force her to get up, and so he doesn't check the bags on her saddle. We see that even though Rachel has sinned, she has lied about stealing these false gods from her father. She, she lied about that. And, and just in that alone, I think I count four violations of the Ten Commandments. So she sinned here. But God was faithful, nevertheless. God was faithful to protect Jacob and his camp anyway. So Laban finds nothing, and since his gods were really the only thing that he was concerned about, he's ready to leave. He's ready to leave. You know, he, he, he dishonored Jacob, though. And that's something that we need to make note of. He, he dishonored Jacob by wrongfully accusing him of stealing. And so after 20 years of being abused and mistreated by Laban, Jacob's had it. Let's look at verses 36 to 42. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. And what have you found of your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried. And I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I didn't bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day the heat consumed me and the cold by night. And my, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years, I have been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock. And you have changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Now the right thing for Laban to have done when, he, when his accusations proved empty, when he didn't find any evidence anyway of his gods being in Jacob's possession, would have been to not only apologize to Jacob, but it was a great offense to wrongly accuse somebody in this culture. And so there, there needed to be some type of peace offering. But there's none of that. Laban doesn't, doesn't offer that. According to ancient Mesopotamian law, Jacob was innocent of every charge. And so given Jacob's innocence and the abuse that he had sustained for 20 years that he had spent serving Laban, he finally just boils over. He finally lets Laban have it. You know, people have, have this kind of storybook idea of what it's like to be a shepherd uh, this kind of romantic idea that you, 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 you're out in the pastures and the sheep are just grazing and you just kind of chill out there all day, every day. But Jacob reveals the truth of the matter here. And that is that shepherding 
is extremely hard work. It's strenuous work. And the past 20 years have been filled with great personal sacrifice on his behalf, great financial loss on his behalf, and great hardships. And here's the beautiful and difficult truth of it all. God had orchestrated it this way. It is not accidental that this is the way it's played out for the last 20 years. It is not accidental. This is the way God had ordained it to happen. You might say, well, why would God do that? Why would God not only allow, but ordain that Jacob should go through so many hardships, that Jacob should, should suffer so greatly? Why would God do that? For the same reason that to this very day, He disciplines the one He loves, and He chastises every son whom He receives. That's from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. And the average person would think, well, what kind of God would do that? What kind of God would discipline and chastise every son whom he receives? The sovereign God of the universe. The creator of all things. The God who sustains all things and for whom all things exist. For whose glory all things exist. He's the God who loves his children so dearly that he disciplines them in order to separate them. In order to, to pull them away from the world. Showing them the vileness of sin. He's the God who loves His children so dearly that He prunes them that they might grow and bear more fruit, as Jesus said in John chapter 15. And lest we misunderstand the importance and the necessity of being pruned, the alternative is to be cut up and thrown into the eternal fire. As the Puritan preacher John Trapp once said, better to be pruned to grow than cut up to burn. End quote. So why did Jacob suffer? Why did Jacob have to go through all these hardships for 20 years? Because God loved him too much to let him just be comfortable in the world. And the same is true for you and me if we are to be children of the Most High God. Hebrews 12.8 declares, if you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Verse 10 tells us why he does this. It says, he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. So it's not just Jacob who has been chastised. It's not just Jacob who has been disciplined by God. It is every single last one of God's children. The reality is that trials and hardships and loss and sacrifice are all normal for the Christian life because holiness, Hebrews 12.10, because holiness is normal for the Christian life. That's a minority view in our day and age, isn't it? But the Bible tells us that it is true as well as any well-accepted, well-established fact that you could possibly think of. What a blessed and wonderful and beautiful 
and difficult thing it is to be disciplined by God as a loving father disciplines his children. What incredible grace to be loved by him. To be loved so much by him that he doesn't want us to be comfortable with the world, with sin, with worldly influence. And what grace to be received by him and welcomed by him and nurtured by him. And Jacob knows it. He knows that he's, he's gone through some dark, deep valleys. He has encountered great hardship, but he knows that above and beyond that, he knows that God has been there with him through it all. And he knows that from a worldly perspective, this is, this is awful. But as a child of God, he knows that it's all of grace and that it's all been ordained and orchestrated by God in this way. Let's continue. Verses 43 to 55. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks. And all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they have borne? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, Gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jegar Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore he named it Galid and Mizpah, for he said, The Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters or if you take wives beside my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. And Laban departed and returned home. So even though he was completely in the wrong here, even though he should have made some type of financial restitution to Jacob, even though he has been exposed as the abusive sinner that he is, Laban still can't humble himself. He still thinks that all Jacob has is his. He says, the daughters, the, the grandchildren, the sheep, it's, it's all mine. Everything you see, it's, it's, it's really mine. No, it's not. But he thinks it is. And he suggests, okay, well, nothing I can do about it now. So let's, let's just have a covenant. So they establish a covenant between them. And so Jacob gets a, a heap of stones. And this is going to be kind of a, a border, if you will. It's a, it's a dividing line between the two of them. It's going to mark a point that neither of them is to cross. And it's interesting 
that Laban, who's been referred to in this passage as Laban the Aramean, uh, he gives it an Arabic name. Jacob gives it a Hebrew name. Okay, so Laban's been called an Aramean through this passage, and here Jacob is clearly identifying with his Hebrew ancestry. And what's the significance of that? The significance is that the break is complete. The separation is done. It's finalized. These are, are two entirely different people groups with two different languages. You know, in verse 49, this is, I don't know if this should be funny or sad. In verse 49, we, we, call what's com- we find what's commonly called the blessing of Mizpah. And, and, and if, if it's sad, if, if it isn't funny, I mean, we call it a blessing, which is kind of odd, because it's not. It's not a blessing. It's the terms of the covenant, but it's not a blessing because someone somewhere thought that it was a blessing. You can actually find this written inside of Christmas cards or, or graduation cards or when you know, kids going off to college. You can find it inside of wedding bands. And what it's saying is that Laban and Jacob hate each other. They, they dislike each other so much they're counting on God to keep them separated. And it's a declaration that basically means I don't like you, I don't trust you, I don't ever want to see you again, so may God make sure to watch over you and keep you away from me. Now, I don't know about you, but that usually doesn't work for Christmas cards or wedding bands. Or, or who knows, maybe sometimes it does, but, you know, <laughs> it's not a blessing. It, it, it's a, it's a, a statement of separation. But the Christian journey is about growing in godliness. It's about growing in Christ-likeness. Growing in personal holiness. And this, it, this is something that doesn't happen when we're comfortable. This is something that can't be done without great pain, without great loss, without great hardship. But as Rachel and Leah instructed Jacob, whatever God has told you to do in His Word, do. What He has said, you must be willing to do. And what what has He said in His Word? John chapter 15, verses 10 to 14, Jesus says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if... You do what I command you. And as we consider our passage today, we can't overlook or miss the fact that Jacob's departure from Haran, it's actually a parallel. It's actually a foreshadowing of, uh, of things that were to come and things that had already happened. It was similar, it was parallel to Abraham's departure from Ur, but it also foreshadows Israel's massive exodus from Egypt. Jacob leaves and he's pursued by Laban. The Israelites left and were pursued by Pharaoh. Laban's house was plundered by Jacob's family and Israel would plunder Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Laban is forced by God to let Jacob go and Pharaoh is forced by God to let the Israelites go. But the foreshadowing goes beyond that, doesn't it? 
Because it also foreshadows the glorious deliverance and the freedom that we have from the world, from sin, and from the broad road that leads to hell and eternal condemnation for all who will repent and believe in Christ Jesus our Lord. In our crucified and resurrected Messiah, Jesus Christ, we find the answers to all of our insecurities, all of our needs, all of our doubts, and all of our fears. In Him, we have the anchor that holds us steady in the fury of the storm. So friends, I urge you today, do not take your sanctification lightly. Do not take the pursuit of personal holiness lightly. Keep your eyes and your heart set on Christ and strive for holiness without which nobody will see God. And you do that by reading God's Word, studying God's Word, knowing God's Word, and doing God's Word. Submitting your will to what He says. So separate yourselves from worldliness But remember, remember that all the glory for any degree of victory that you have goes to God, who loves you enough to break you free from the world, who loves you enough that He won't let you be comfortable and stay comfortable with sin, who loves you enough to cause all things to work together for His glory and for your growth in Christ's likeness your growth in holiness, which invariably must involve loving, fatherly discipline. And all the glory is His in our deliverance from evil. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. So to Him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You for giving us the Holy Spirit who illuminates the text for us, that we may understand Your Word, that we may see how it applies to our lives, and that we may have the conviction in our wills to obey. So, Father, thank You for the way that Your Word guides us and directs us and reveals Your will to us. But Father, we do pray that His work, the Holy Spirit's work in us would continue and that as it does, we would see our need to break free from the world and from worldly influence. We thank You, Lord, for Your discipline knowing that you discipline us as a father who loves his children, disciplines them. And so we pray, Lord, that you would give us this perspective, that we'd see our losses, that we'd see our hardships, that we'd see our trials as great gifts from you, given to us to motivate us to grow in Christ's likeness, to grow in holiness. And so to that end, We thank you for your work in us, and we pray for it to continue. We pray for our faith to continue to grow. 
for the glory of Christ, in whom we rejoice and in whom we trust. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.